Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the Underdogs Podcast. I'm Tom Haverstrow. That's Jordan Brenner, Peter Keating. Fellas, we are going to talk about some baseball a little bit later. The NFL draft is next Thursday, 28th. First... get into this NBA playoffs. We have ourselves a potential Cinderella moment. Devin Booker is injured. His hamstring is biting at him and barking. It's the other hamstring, not the same one that uh, hurt him earlier this year. And the Pellies, the New Orleans Pelicans, the eight seed took down the Phoenix Suns. And on the other side, we have, you know, some interesting series uh, in uh, Miami, the Atlanta Hawks, where we have Trey Young yelling at referees and he's turning the ball every every time. But the real story here is that Pelican series. Fellas, is this going to be a giant killing situation where the Pelicans take down the mighty Phoenix Suns? Well, unless you have some some insight into how long Devin Booker is going to be out, um, I, my, my glass ball is still kind of foggy. But I will say this does speak to sort of what I've always kind of called my hang around theory of the playoffs. And it's sort of the counter to why maybe you shouldn't tank or why it does matter to get into the playoffs, even if you don't think you have a team that's good enough to win the title, because it just seems like, okay, well, we're going to lose at some point. What's the problem, right? You don't know what's going to happen to the rest of the teams in the field. So you stick around, a key injury happens, and suddenly you have a window that you didn't see before. The ultimate example of that, obviously, is the Raptors against the Warriors in the finals, where right. they appeared to be undermanned, and then all of a sudden, no Clay Thompson, no Kevin Durant, you've got an opening and a championship. So stay stay the course, play hard, steal a game here and there, and suddenly the Pelicans may have a real opening, right, guys? Yeah, when you look at Chris Paul's career, like this tends to happen is either he gets hurt or someone on his team, a very important player on his team, whether it's, uh, I don't know, Blake Griffin or you name like endless amount of injuries that have happened to him that have disadvantaged him, which is the reason why he doesn't have a championship right now. And it's not because he's, you know, a coward and he's a choker or anything like that. It's because some bad stuff has happened to him. We're having it again with Devin Booker, who sat the, the Pelicans were up by three points. Um, um, when Devin Booker came up limp and had to leave the floor and then they did blow a lead. They are still in it, right? They were still in it with about seven, eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. They had a lead and then the Pelicans just didn't miss a shot. They scored 22, 22 points on 12 possessions to close out the game. I mean, it was insane. CJ McCollum was cooking. Brandon Ingram was cooking. I'm not going to blame this on Scott Foster. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. The quality of shot making was so, it was like in the bubble, right? When guys were just hitting shot after shot after shot in ideal circumstances. I mean, Brand Ingram was not hitting easy shots. CJ McCollum, there's something about him in the playoffs, man. Yeah. Automatic for mid range. And he was stepping into these threes. Um, so no, we may not be able to blame this one on Scott Foster, but he does linger over that game. Like, uh, like a stale fart, doesn't he? Yes, he oh, does. Good lord! <laughs> and, and how how sustainable do we think any of that is? You think the hot shooting holds? I mean, it it is it is getting to be the coincidence of the bad fortune of the Chris Paul teams is getting to be. I, it's just it's kind of hard to believe, but I also think it's a little hard to believe that the Pelicans can keep up either their hot shooting. Or anything like the defense it's going to take to contend with Phoenix over, even even if Booker's hurt or not there or not at his best over 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 you know over multiple games. The Pelicans gave up 113 points per hundred possessions over the season. When is the last time you, we can talk about Cinderella qualities? But when's the last time that that basic stat led anybody anywhere deep into the playoffs? Well, the Suns scored 61 in the first half. 31 of those points came from Devin Booker. 
And so a lot of that is just they were going to score a ton of points, but then Booker got hurt. And look, the Pelicans, you can throw out like the first 20 games of the season. I mean, that defensive rating is probably a little baking in too much from that, that rough go in the first half of the season when Herb Jones wasn't, you know, just killing dudes. And he's amazing. Did you say Herb Jones? Can we keep that? Because that's Herb. fantastic. I always get tripped up with Herb. Herb. Williams, is it Herb? Herb? I'm just all over the place with Herb. No, I love this. Like, there's so many more puns that Peter can make off Herb Jones now. <laughs> what I think about this series, though, it's all going to come down to whether the NBA puts Scott Foster on another game. I mean, there wasn't any controversy here in this game. They, they, they hit a lot of shots. Wasn't like there was some controversial calls that went the other way. And Chris Paul is flaming Scott Foster like he tends to do in these press conferences after Scott Foster games. But still, guys, it is insane. The record, the track record of Scott Foster with Chris Paul. I'm going to give you the stats here. Scott Foster has refereed 19 playoff games when Chris Paul is playing. And Chris Paul's team in those 19 games is 2-17. and 17. Just unbelievable. Now, is there is there anything we can see that makes that correlation but not causation i mean is it is it is there anything is there any possible explanation that those games could have in common other than the referee and the player i, I mean, mean first of all you'd have to think that for that to even be somewhat feasible that chris paul teams would mostly be overmatched in the playoffs which hasn't been the case right right he's generally right. not an underdog or certainly not an underdog by massive standards okay then you'd have to go in and look at where, where, as Tom was saying, was he were these all games where he was missing tons of guys due to injuries? Was it you know a, a game coming off a, a big win where the other team made adjustments? But none of that explains two and seventeen, Tom. What what are the odds on that? Well, think about it this way: <laughs> Vegas has them favored the majority of those games. Oh, wow, they were favorites in in most of those games. So they were favored in twelve of the. 19 games, okay, against the spread. So this is Vegas saying, you know what? Let's make these 50-50 affairs by doing a spread on these games. Chris Paul against the spread is 2-17 and 17 <laughs> with Scott Foster. So it's just, even when you look at, all right, let's, let's account for the favorite and the underdog. No, Chris Paul is 2-17 and 17 against the spread in those 19 playoff games. And here's the crazy one, craziest one. It's a 13-game losing streak for Chris Paul. 13 straight games that he has lost in the playoffs with Scott Foster, one official, officiating those games. And you might be sitting here and saying, Chris Paul... He's been on some bad teams. He's always losing in the playoffs. No, I, I mentioned the favored games, but overall in the playoffs, Chris Paul is 66 and 65, which means 500 record, which is pretty good. And that's including Scott Foster games. <laughs> so in Scott Foster games, two and 17 in non Scott Foster games, he's 64 and 48. <laughs> okay. And by the way, I mean, just to underscore something here, I mean, that's, that is funny. We're all laughing, but those games are by definition really important because they're playoff games and they're I think they're at a level and and the record in those games is is important enough that they play a really crucial part in defining Chris Paul's entire career. I'll tell you something. I think there's too much parsing of intentionality written into a lot of sports rules. I think we should it should be a lot easier for changes about stuff like this to be made just because that record exists. If this split is noticeable. Meaning Scott Foster would no longer be assigned to Chris Paul's games? Yeah. I, I don't think, for example, if a pitcher is wild or a pitcher is nasty and hitting batters, right? I don't think you need to be able to, I don't think the umpire needs to be able to say, you did this on purpose, therefore you're ejected. I think it should be fine for the umpire to go to the manager and say, your guy doesn't have it today. Somebody's going to get hurt. We'll all be a little bit better off if this situation changes. I think the league should certainly feel like it has the authority and probably at this point the obligation to say, hey, we're not saying anybody has any personal beef or somebody's gambling or anything like that. We're just saying, well, I'll be a little bit better off if the random distribution of events 
looks a little more random and not so slanted and just move the guy to a different game. If, if there's nothing going on, right, if it's just a coincidence, why should Scott Foster or Chris Paul have to answer questions about this or think about it? And if there is something weird going on, well, they didn't get to it by the start of this series and they're not going to get to it within the next week or two. So let's just move them. Move them anywhere. Move them to Miami. Let them officiate Trey Young games. See if that satisfies Trey Young. If State Farm really wanted to do the greatest commercial of all time, <laughs> they would introduce Scott Foster as the um, chaotic element coming into Chris Paul's house. If Chris Paul had a sense of humor about himself, the thing would kill. I, I, I guess referees probably can't make money from commercials. Otherwise, it'd be fantastic. Not commercials about them causing players to lose games, I bet. <laughs> Here's another stat for you. The sum of how many points he was favored in those 19 games. He was favored by a total of 17 points. So he was favored on average by one point in each game of those 19. But the actual deficit, the actual results of those 19 games, he was outscored. His team lost by a total of 184 points for an average deficit of 9.7. So he was favored by a point on average and lost by 10 points in those games. So it's a swing of 11 points per game below what we'd expect given the strength of Chris Paul's teams. Do you think the basketball Illuminati can investigate the root causes of this? We're going to have to. Maze, we're going to have to do this. Is the, really get into the nitty gritty because it is. Look, Peter, I hear what you say. I hear what you're saying here about the league should step in and and um, do something about this and not have Scott Foster on Chris Paul games anymore. But that's an admission of impropriety. But it shouldn't be. It should just be like, hey, whether you're flipping the coin wrong or the coin is warped, the last sixteen thousand times we flipped the coin here at the NFL game, right? Uh, it came up heads. Well. We don't we, we want it we we don't want we don't want somebody less careful than the folks working at Basketball Illuminati to go around and start publishing headlines saying Scott Foster's costing Chris Paul eleven points a game. Right? We I mean it's it's actually a much worse situation if that data which is available and we you figured it out, right, is out there and getting used without there actually being any proof of impropriety. I'm kind of excited to now look at Chris Paul as the ultimate underdog. The next That's time right. Scott Foster does one of his games. Wait, but Shane's going to have a problem with that. Shane Shane from last week. If you haven't listened to the last week's episode with Shane Battier, he was great. He calls himself the ultimate underdog. And now we That's might true. have one of his you know, ACC rivals, Chris Paul, being actually the ultimate underdog. Oh, wait, Tom, Tom, At I'm sorry. When, wait, 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 Jordan, wait a oh, minute. No. ACC rivals. Look, I was just going to skip right ACC through it. ACC rivals. Is there, is there air quotes around something or a parenthesis you'd like to make explicit, Tom? You mean – an alumni of some random ACC school. We were going to just get, we were going to go right through Smallest it. Smallest power five school in America, Wake Forest. It's, it's a tiny school. Um, very, I mean, very much underdogs. We'll get into how uh, draft performance is associated with where you go to school. At some point, we'll get it on this podcast. And we're going to talk about the NFL draft later. And maybe I should look at the NFL prospects who went to Wake Forest and how they do in the NFL. But that's for another day. Okay, guys, that's for another day. Let's talk about the the lingering factor looming over this series in the playoffs. And the longer the Pelicans hang around, will they be getting another weapon at some point? Well, is Zion is he going to be a factor? You know, on on TNT they keep saying, well, he's playing five on five, but it's controlled five and five against the coaches. It's not against players. They really want to they really want to hammer that home with us, but. God, at some point, is he healthy enough? And then do you, if you're playing well, do you reintroduce him back into the mix when you have it? He has not played in a year. Well, I think when you look at this situation, it seems to me like a very, a disagreement about whether he's ready to play or not. I mean, when Zion Williamson is pointing out videos, publishing videos of him doing 360 dunks <laughs> or through the legs, like that to me is him being like, hello, I can play. Can't you see? This is how healthy I am. And yet this tyrannical, this authoritative front office is just not letting me play. Like that's what I think is happening here. And whether that is actually happening is that they're having a difference of opinion of his medical readiness to play. The longer that the Pelicans can hold on, the greater chances 
that Zion comes in. And so it is important to extend the series and capitalize on these injuries, even if they might not win the series at least getting it to a game seven raises the odds that they get this hero coming in Zion Williamson, who averaged like 28 points last year on like 70% shooting an amazing, amazing force. What's actually fascinating is to look at this from an underdog perspective, right? I think you can make a really strong case that this team isn't championship quality. You're still you're trying to get Zion back to a place where he has a long career. The, clearly, if you can get these guys on the same page, there's a lot of talent. This could be a, a top team next year. Don't risk it now. Don't bring him back. Wait till next year. The underdog mentality is high risk, high reward. So from that perspective, you know, throw him in there. Be disruptive. Hope that the whatever factor he gives you, even if it's 15 minutes a game off the bench, anchoring that second unit as a scorer, is such a game-changing event that maybe you do have a window maybe you do have the ultimate underdog run in in nba history so for our show's perspective i want to see it well it's also the longer it goes on the longer new orleans looks like it has a team that could do some damage the high risk high reward the high reward doesn't necessarily just have to be about this series i mean zion obviously wants to establish that he has some value that he's not some Always injured, never playing. Greg Oden. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but sooner or later, the front office will feel that way too, whether they want to keep him or not. Well, they clearly want to keep him. They don't want him, you know, the whole thing has been, is he eyeing other destinations already and, and, and such. But if they don't play him and he wants to play, that's not good. And if they want to get something for him, they need to play him. Somebody needs to show somebody that Zion has value. They would get something for him regardless. What I'm saying is it makes it – it's going to make it a lot harder for him to be like, I want out of here, the better these guys look. Right. Because he can't say they can't build a championship team. Or, I got to tell you, man, a team with Zion, Ingram, and McCollum as scorers, Herb Jones Herb. mixing up the tea Herb. leaves and uh, – Mixing up the tea leaves. Stopping everyone. That's an incredible <laughs> positionless four. And then you rotate in. Valanciunas, who's a – Good big. Jackson Hayes last night was was all over the court. Like they've got shooting, they've got young reserves like Trey Murphy. Tell me why this team couldn't be like a top five team in the league next year. No, especially with Herb Jones pushing the tempo because he's all about time. Time. The the herb oh, time. I'm God. sorry. I'm sorry. Oh jeez. <laughs> That's awful. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. If Zion comes back and Scott Foster is put on that game seven. Uh, <laughs> underdog's gonna have a field day whatever that spread is just hammer hammer the pellies <laughs> one last stat on scott foster because there's so many i could cite but given the implied odds of each of those games those 13 games the odds of chris paul losing 13 straight games ready for it get us with it point zero 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 four percent Point zero 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 four percent. So let's see. That's a hundred thousandth millionth, but it's a hundred four in a hundred millionth. Do we even have a word for that? Is like quintillionths or something like that? It's like uh, forty billionths, four four out of ten billion, something like that. crazy. That's almost as large as the uh, margin was uh, in Game Two of the Grizzlies Timberwolves series. Uh, wow! Talk about nice segue, Jordan Brenner. I thought you were going to say it's, that's the chance that Zion will come to the Knicks is point zero 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 four. Mays says it's done deal, right? By the way, that's the second time we've mentioned Mays, our new producer. And I want to apologize to him publicly right now because I just realized in all of my emphatic statements, I moved up and screamed into the microphone just like he asked me not to do. It was volunt- It was involuntary. It was not – It was. It was. I'm sorry for making his job harder. So The real underdog here is Peter Keating listening to our <laughs> – but let, can we talk? Can we talk Grizz? Uh, some Grizz Wolves, because I love that series. Absolutely, Memphis. Look, Stephen Adams. We talked about it last week. The whole factor of him being on the floor in the playoffs. I think it really crippled a lot of what Russell Westbrook was doing in OKC and takes up a lot of space. But he has a great advantage on the board. So what do you do with Stephen Adams? Taylor Jenkins answers. Right, Jordan. Everyone was all over the Timberwolves as an underdog coming into the series because of their talent. Game one obviously went their way. People forgot about how good this Grizzlies team and what makes them good. And that's that they don't play the same way everyone else does, and they don't conform to conventional wisdom. 
So what did Taylor Jenkins do? Th- two minutes into the game, pulls Steven Adams, and he goes to a smaller, more versatile lineup. He reintroduced Xavier Tillman off the bench, who'd basically been out of the rotation. And this wasn't just about John Morant flirting with a triple-double. It wasn't about their starters making shots. This is an incredibly deep, versatile team. So against uh, the Wolves in Game 2, Xavier Tillman, uh, Zaire Williams, best point guard in the league, uh, backup point guard in the league, Tyus Jones, and Brandon Clark. Oh, I love that you stopped yourself there. You want to say best point guard. You said best point guard in the league. You got to lean into it, Jordan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next year. Yeah. Next year. That's they coming. combined to shoot right. 18 for 28 from the field off the bench. This team can mix and match, play big, play small, play fast, but they are still playing a high-risk, high-reward style. They um, out-offensive rebounded the Timberwolves, I think, 14-4. to four. Turnover battle, they won 19-9. to nine. So they are good, and they need to keep playing their way because I think they're going to beat the, the Wolves in the series. I still have them in five, and I think eventually they're going to be in an underdog situation, say, against Golden State. And they can't do what other teams we've seen in the past do, which is say, this is how we play and we're going to be stubborn and we're not going to adjust. I think Taylor Jenkins has already shown if he's willing to bench his starting center due to matchups, that this team can beat you in a lot of different ways. And I love it. They're a great fun team to watch. They're so young. Maybe it's their youth that makes us identify them as giant potential giant killers against better teams because they do what a lot of great college giant killers do, which is they amass possessions. When you get all those offensive rebounds, you, you, you beat the other team 14 to four on the other offensive boards and, and you turn, you get way more turnovers than you force way turn, turnovers than you commit. What does that do? It gives you, it gives you possessions, right? And Memphis had 92 field goal attempts versus what? 76 for Minnesota, right? 16 more shots. That's, that's assuming, assuming, uh, there's an even distribution of, or roughly even of free throw attempts, and you're not letting your opponents get to the line, or Scott Foster's not working the game, uh, or something, you know, <laughs> something like that. Then the 16, 16 differential in, in shots is is huge against with good teams playing each other. Do you guys still see the Timberwolves as a live underdog in this series, or do you think that was a game one blip? Game one blip, and I'll tell you why. There's a great Twitter feed called Shot Quality. It's shot underscore quality. I suggest everyone to go follow it because it takes the shot quality of your team in a game based on these factors. Um, 90 different variables to quantify the quality of a possession, whether it's shot making, shot selection, offense, rebound probability, and the defender closeout. Um, They analyzed the game one shots between those two teams, Timberwolves and Grizzlies, and found out that even though the Timberwolves won 130 to 117, the shot quality dictated that the Memphis Grizzlies should have won 127 to 112. So based on the shot quality, 10% of the time Timberwolves would have won that game. They actually won that game against the odds of the shot quality. And the question is, like make or miss league, should we have expected them to outperform their shot quality again in game two. And they didn't, they didn't based on the fact that they, a lot of tough shots went in, lucky shots went in their way. Uh, they were not It's supposed to win game two based on that shot quality. And of course Memphis wins and kills them in, in game two. And it's funny you mentioned that because we were just talking about the Pelicans and the Suns and all the tough shots. Um, the Pelicans hit down the stretch and based on shot quality, same sort of thing. It should have been 111, 107 Suns. Suns would win 58% of the time based on the shot quality of that game. So it sort of, it dovetails with what we saw in, from an eye test perspective, right? Totally. So it's, it's important when you're picking these underdogs or laying down bets or just trying to, you know, see who to back for these underdogs is make sure that there's not a lot of luck affecting their wins. And so I think people got a little too high on the Timberwolves after that game one where they just hit everything. And then Carl Anthony Towns and the rest of the team turned into a pumpkin in, in game two. So I, I think what's the most interesting thing for me also is the Steven Adams factor. I, I thought that he was going to be the, the guy who's going to be able to own the boards and get those second chance opportunities for them. But even when he's out, 
they were able to clean up the glass. And I think that's an indication of culture. I think that's an indication of a team identity. That's an indication of Taylor Jenkins, I think, uh, deserves coach of the year this year because of the, the plug and play of these players that Jordan pointed out is that no matter who's in the lineup, they they play a certain way and they just do a great job of playing to their strengths. And in this one in game two, they, they shut the Timberwolves out by playing to their identity. A guy like Xavier Tillman, actually, his best quality probably is being live on the offensive glass. I don't know that he's a screener the way Steven Adams is. I don't know that he's got the defensive IQ of a Steven Adams and experience. But you're right. There are different plug and play guys that allow you to play a lot of different lineups. Look at Kyle Anderson, right? You can play any number of styles with that guy teams that the Spurs did for years too. Um, stats don't look great. Then you look at, he was plus 24 in 18 minutes last game. So there's a lot of different types of glue guys there who um, unlock different types of styles. Uh, it's, it's really fun to watch. So my, Miami with with the Hawks, I mean, the Hawks have to do something better in game three with Trey Young. I did the unfortunate thing by betting the money line or making the pick of the Hawks money line and also the over on Trey Young's points and three pointers didn't hit any of those. Um, but it was close there at the end. Um, but Jimmy Butler just went nuts and it was an incredible vintage Jimmy Butler performance. The Hawks are without Clint Capella. We'll see what happens, but I mean, I just don't expect a, a lot of noise there with the one verse eight matchup, unless they get a Devin Booker type injury to one of the star players on the heat. It's just the agent of chaos in these one, eight matchups is always injuries. And Devin Booker is a huge one. So right now I don't think you can bet on DraftKings the series odds, um, on, on the Pella yet because there's a lot of uncertainty regarding Devin Booker's the the seriousness of that injury but that is um that is one to definitely watch is the Pelicans uh with of course Chris Paul if they get Zion Williamson um if they get Scott Foster watch out (laughs) Jimmy Butler said the assistant coaches took a couple of them told them to go out and score as many points as possible well if that's all it took for him to score more, and he can do that when he wants, holy smokes. Peter, imagine if someone had just said that to John Starks in, in <laughs> Game 7. I think John Starks was telling them, and, no, <laughs> and, and they didn't want it. You know, they wanted him to stop. Yeah, I um, I think Miami's an, an underrated overdog, right? Miami never goes anywhere. Miami is, is really... Miami's output over a long time in these situations is very high quality. You know, they're they're well coached and they're almost they're almost annoyingly so, but but they're not an unworthy one seed, even though even though they didn't win sixty games or whatever, or you know, even though there was that, that compression we're talking about in the East. I'm sort of over the first round in the East. I'm already kind of I'm the idea of a, of a Heat Sixers Bucks against either Boston or the Nets. That that'd be a fun set of semifinals well i'll say the miami heat as a 53 win team the number of number one seeds that have been that bad in the regular season or not win that many games there have been four times that i can find 2017 boston celtics they were 53 and 29 2007 Detroit Pistons, they were 53 and 29. 2003 Detroit Pistons, 50 and 32. 2002 New Jersey Nets, they were 52 and 30. None of them won the title as number one seeds. None of them even won a game in the finals. In, in fact, of the four number ones that were as pedestrian in the regular season as the Heat this year, those number one seeds with low win totals in the regular season. They went seven and eighteen after the conference semis and no championships. So, right now, like I think they're going to be they're going to win this series against Atlanta. I picked them in seven. I think it's probably going to be shorter than that. But the long term upside of this Miami Heat team, it does seem to me that the win total in the regular season matters more than the actual number one seed, right, Jordan? Like the number one seeds should be doing better than that record that I said that they they seven and 18 after the conference semis. Totally. But what's interesting is I was, I was thinking while you were talking, well, does that mean the whole East is weak? And I, and I, hmm. I don't think if you had to pick an East team to win the championship, I think we would probably all say the bucks first, right? Yeah, I would. Sure. Thinking of the, of all those, the, t- the four teams, we just five teams, we just mentioned, right? The heat, the bucks, Nets, Celtics, Sixers. I don't think we'd see them going into any series against the West team being like, Oh, they're overmatched. It's, I think part of the, the story of the series you told in the past was there was a dominant West team at the same time, either the Lakers or the Spurs. We talked about the, the Suns maybe 
sort of underrated in some of their dominance. But I still wouldn't look at like, oh, Heat Suns, Heat are going to get swept. Oh, if they play Golden State, man, and Golden State's got Steph and Draymond and Clay, like I don't think any team's beating them. We'll see what happens if it, with with Giannis and Drew and and Middleton. That'll be a fun a fun matchup because of the way because of the way the Bucks can play small. Okay, Draymond, <laughs> you want to be a, a a five? Meet Mr. Giannis. It would be a fun series. It would be a really fun series. Oh, that would be such a good series. I'm rooting for that. So fun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, you know what's a fun series? Tell us, Tom. Peter's Hot Corner. <laughs> We've got a new series coming on the show. It's called Peter's Hot Corner. He's going to talk a little baseball. Peter, what do you got for us? Well, I'm glad I'm glad we've elevated it to the status of a series. That's uh, that, that's good. It's just an intermittent random fantasy idea. The series sounds much, much better. I noticed that Andrelton Simmons is going to face... Live pitching. He's been injured, right? Give us a little taste of who Andrelton Simmons is. Okay, so Andrelton Simmons could make the Hall of Fame just based on his defense at shortstop. He's a fantastic defender at shortstop. Great range, great arm, fun to watch. The opposite of Derek Jeter. (laughs) Right. Derek Jeter had no range, a suspect arm. And he was fun to watch until A-Rod came to town, and then they were just cranky, right? Um, Simmons is great, and um, you know he's, he's been signed by the Chicago Cubs in the offseason. And the thing about the Cubs is, is that in the middle of last year, everyone remembers, they just started trading or giving, jettisoning all of the players that were the core to their memorable championship and playoff runs over the past few seasons. Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, everybody. Uh, everybody except longtime Cubs starter Kyle Hendricks, who had a horrible stretch run last year. And I think it's because the team is basically falling apart around him. He's a very extreme ground ball pitcher. And the Cubs got rid of Anthony Rizzo. They got rid of Javier Baez, two plus defenders. And, um, you know, ground ball pitchers' stats tend to take on the characteristics of their team because their team influences their stats more than pitchers who just strike out, walk, you know, three true outcomes pitchers who who strike out, walk a lot of guys. Herb Jones is a better defender than Andrelton, by the way, but go on. I don't think that's right. Well, maybe his sister Rosemary is. I don't know. Jesus. Anyway. I'm so sorry, anyone listening to this. Anyway, the point is very simple. When the Cubs decided to kind of rebuild a little bit without spending too much money, they decided to f- they actually found some value in some interesting players. They signed Simmons, and they also signed Marcus Stroman, who gets induces ground balls on more than half of his batted balls. That's the that's I think the highest rate in all of MLB last year for anybody who threw more than a hundred innings. They also have Wade Miley, who's been injured also, but he's coming back. He's another ground ball pitcher. Miley, Hendricks, Stroman, all these guys are going to benefit suddenly, starting soon, from having one of the all-time greatest shortstops in their infield. And the Cubs' defense is tighter in general. They traded away their closer for Nick Madrigal, who's a young contact hitter, but he also plays a very good second base. And the Cubs are drastically improved defensively from where they were at the end of last season when they were playing a bunch of walking no, you did a bunch of guys nobody knew or knows still. Wait, let me corner you here. Who's the guy they installed the first big? Frank Schwindel? Oh, love Frank Sch- and and uh, Wisdom Patrick Wisdom and Patrick Wisdom. Yes. So those guys, those guys stuck, but the interior defense is a lot better. Well, let me ask you: Are we? Are should I just be picking up the pitchers from my fantasy team, or are you saying the Cubs are actually an underdog contender in the NL Central? I think they're on the rebound to being slightly better than mediocre ahead of schedule. Wow. Wow. That's some- <laughs> that is <laughs> watch out now. <laughs> I mean, wait, can we repeat that? Yeah. What a ringing endorsement. You're expecting them to be slightly better than mediocre. The hot takes from the hot corner. The lukewarm corner here from Peter Keating. If the Cubs are running out the team they were they were putting on the field in last September, they'd be like a hundred lost team. I think most people thought they'd be like a 70-something win team. I think they're on track to be like an 80-something win team. That's all. 
But the difference is centered in a few ground ball pitchers. And yeah, I think they're going to be excellent. Yeah, definitely. Plus, Marcus Stroman is an excellent pick for this for this podcast. He's an underdog. He's a short guy. He's a little chippy. He's dealt with a lot in his career. He's battled back from injuries. Yes, Stroman. Love him. Hot take. Well, Peter, I like the idea of building teams differently, especially as I watch the Yankees once again try to hit home runs when they can't hit home runs and basically just, you know, I, I'm if I have to watch Joey Gallo play one more game for them, I, I'm done. But there's only a certain number of ways you can win in baseball, not like football, not with all the options you have in the draft. Who are we talking about, John Sterling all of a sudden? Well, you can't predict it, Peter. But I am I am excited about the NFL draft coming up next Thursday, mostly because the New York teams have four of the top 10 picks. And as a New York football fan, there hasn't been much to root for in years. So this is our day. But I feel like more than any other team building exercise in major sports, the NFL draft is is sort of filled with opportunities to build your team differently and to take advantage of people who may not know what they're doing. So <laughs> is that is that a gentle way to put it, guys? That's as nice a way as I put the Cubs rebuilding chances. Yeah. You can take advantage of all the GMs who who misevaluate talent because they fall in love with college game film and they fall in love with one day worth of performance at the combine. Imagine if there was a combine for any other job, whether it's journalists or garbage men or I should say sanitation engineers, whatever. Imagine they get you all together in one room and they say, run up and down the hallway. And based on that, we're going to determine your contract for your job for the next five years, even though we don't know whether running has anything to do, running up and down the hallway has anything to do with how you're going to perform your job. It's insane. Let's just all draft everybody with, with, with big hand size. That was the new craze last year. Come on. Why do we make offensive linemen do the, the 40? Like, what's the point? I guess in just to show how athletic they are, but like when in an NFL game, are they in a dead sprint? I guess to get out on a screen pass or something, but it's sort of like the old example of when we can't measure what's important, we make important what we can measure. And it's like the teams that are are able to isolate the actual variables that matter have such a huge, huge leg up in, in, in football more than anything else because you don't have the stats. Right. What I'm wondering is you mentioned that New York teams have four of the top 10 picks in the draft. Should the other six teams get on the phone with the Giants and Jets <laughs> and just say, hey, you want all of these picks? I mean, what are we offering here? Well, it wouldn't matter with the Giants up until this season because their GM fell in love with the once in a what was the guy? The guy wearing the gold jacket once in a generation talent and Saquon Barkley and didn't even listen to offers to trade back in a year where the Giants needed about. 15 good players, not just one in a draft. But in Dave Gettleman's final draft move, and it, it, it's actually something we wanted to talk about anyway, he maybe kind of fell ass backwards into the right idea, which was they traded back. The Bears wanted to move up to get Justin Fields, and they got extra picks, including a first rounder this year. And and, and Peter, I know you have a lot of thoughts on sort of the, the, the value that those future picks have. Well, this is an example of something we want to talk about called arbitrage. This week's Stats 101, possibly more interesting than the Cubs winning 78 games this season, but I'm not going <laughs> to offer any guarantees. It's Stats 101 with Peter Keating. Mathematical concepts from a guy who, like myself, went to Harvard. Go Crimson. The dictionary detri- defines arbitrage as the buying and selling of the same asset at different prices. Imagine if I'm walking down the street and I pass Jordan's house and I see a signed photo without Jordan's name on it from Grant Hill. And I'm like, wow, Jordan would pay me, I don't know, $500, dollars $1,000, especially if I scrawled Jordan's name on it and made pretended like he had personally autographed it. But Tom, Tom might have thrown that out in the trash. Tom might have seen zero value in that, whereas Jordan might might see hundreds of dollars in value in that. I could buy it for zero, sell it for a 500, I'd profit off the arbitrage. The same asset can have different prices to different buyers or sellers at the same time. Now, that may be because of the personal attachments we have to things, or it may just be because we're really bad at telling how much things are worth. If I want to sell my car for $10,000 and you only want to buy it for $5,000, it may be because it's actually a piece of junk 
and it may not be worth five or ten, it might be worth two. Anyway, the same player at different points in a draft can have very different values for the people looking at and evaluating him. Last year, after the Giants couldn't get Devontae Adams, right, Jordan? They looked at who was left and they saw the available players. They didn't see the value. Devontae Smith, Devontae Smith. Devontae Smith. Oh, my God. Did I say Devontae Adams? I would have loved Devontae Adams. Herb. Herb Adams. They couldn't get him either. They couldn't get uh, <laughs> They couldn't get Herb Williams either. Uh, anyway, Devontae Smith. So they looked at the players who were left. They didn't see a lot of what they wanted coming up, whereas the Bears, looking at the same crop, were dying to get their hands on a new quarterback, right? Justin Adams, Justin Smith. No, it was Justin Fields. And so the Bears were willing to give the Giants a boatload of draft picks to pick right then and there. And that impatience is a really important part of arbitrage when it comes to the NFL draft. Good teams take advantage of the impatience of bad teams again and again and again. And a signature way they do that is by acquiring draft picks in the future. Teams that are very impatient will tend to say, okay, we'll give you a two next year or a three next year to make this deal when they would never give up a two or three in this year's draft to make the same deal. That's basically what we're talking about here. You just talking about an inflation rate on that, right? The seminal paper on the value of draft picks, the loser's curse is what it's called because of the overvaluing of the number one in the early picks by Cade Massey and Richard Thaler, um, looked at the interest rate, essentially, how much teams are willing to pay to borrow a pick. In other words, to get a pick now instead of using an equivalent pick the next year, and the interest rate something like 136%. And, and in the Giants-Bears case, the Giants moved back, again, at what, nine pick Was it nine or 11 picks last year? The Giants moved back about a dozen picks, still got Kadarius Toney, a wide receiver, with their pick. But just to move back a dozen picks, they now have the seventh pick in the draft this year, which was higher than what they traded away for Fields last year. Right. So they got a first and a fourth just to move back to switch picks a dozen pitch plays. That alone, just delaying it for a year, they got a higher pick and all the extra picks that, you know, they got on top of that. So I, I'm with you. I think it's a, it's an incredibly savvy move to continue to try to trade for future picks that have more value than this year. The only way I think you could make it work on the other side is there's no last year of the league when all these bills come due, right? So theoretically, you could keep trading future picks for more future picks and then more future picks for more future picks. So in other right, words, if right. you were the if you were the Bears last year, you gave away this year's one. Well, then they just trade for another one this year. Give away next year's one and keep doing it. You you're you're pretty much guaranteeing yourself you could still have a first round pick by borrowing from the future to get another one until someone's unwilling to deal with you, I guess is the only only way it doesn't happen. All right, the problem teams run into is Theoretically, there's no reason why a pick next year or two years from now should be worth any less than this year's pick because the league isn't going to go out of business in a year or two, right? I mean, if I have an apple tree and I want to sell you the apple tree, you have to factor in the to the cost, the possibility the tree might die or be hit by lightning. It's not going to happen to the Chicago Bears. But it's human beings making these decisions, not not machines with infinite horizons. So sooner or later, a GM or a coach feels their job is on the line and needs that one player now. And that's where where the strategy breaks down. Because sooner or later, you run into somebody who you think is irreplaceable or unattainable unless you make the move now. And that's when you break down and say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get this pick at, at all costs. Some of the best teams, some of the best teams hardly ever do that. You know, New England is famous for trading down, trading back, trading back. The Eagles are another team that the research shows not only trade down and trade back, but often trade into the future. And they just did it again in a trade with the Saints, right? The Saints gave up future picks to get a couple of the Eagles' first-round picks this year. This is how the Eagles always wind up with multiple picks every year. Well, this is the process, right? This is Sam Hankey essentially betting on the future and like, I'm going to have this job and I'm going to collect all these first round picks and Sam Presti's doing it now uh, because there's a lot of job insecurity in the NBA. A lot of GMs and coaches are worried about, am I going to get fired? Well, we better get some help right now or else I'm going to get fired and show my owner that I am capable of winning. We can turn this thing around. Don't worry. And so they give up those future picks and make sure, hey, we got Paul George. We got Kawhi Leonard. We're the Clippers. Who needs draft picks if we're the Clippers? But as Sam Hickey found out in Philadelphia, 
you got to get the trust of your owner if you're going to trust the process, right? So he expected that he was going to be able to see this thing through and he didn't. Eventually, all that losing and betting on the future and saying kicking the can down the road will get enough Joel Embiid's in this in this team will win a championship. The key is you have to have that job security, right, guys? Like in order for these GMs in the NFL to keep betting on the future, you gotta have faith that you're gonna have that job for the next three or four years. If you're betting that, um, if if you if you kick the can down the road and the owner's like, hey, wh- what are you doing? We need a, we need that first round pick this year. You're out of a job. So I can see why that strategy it, on paper looks smart. Is bet on the future, kick the can, accrue these first future first round picks or future picks, but they're human beings and they got jobs. And that's why having that job security might be the biggest asset you can have in sports is have that ownership GM confidence that you can see this through on a three-year, five-year, seven-year basis. Well, and I will say for those of us who may have reported and written a long story on uh, the the downfall of, of Sam and Philly, uh, I figure if Tom plugged the story with Shane last week, I get my turn this week. Um, if uh, I think part of what went wrong there was that Sam did have that buy-in from the majority of the ownership group, and it was outside influences who really forced their hand. Um, the NBA, in this case, getting involved, and I and I, I've long suspected that Scott O'Neill was undermining um, Sam Hinkie and Philly all along, and sort of and 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 poisoning that relationship with the ownership and and the league, because I I don't think Sam would have operated the same way without some certainty from ownership. Um, so. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the Presti situation you brought up in Oklahoma City is is the perfect example because it really does seem there's there's true belief and buy-in on on their front to let Sam do it his way without a a, a true timeline. The the flip side is the NBA and the NFL are so different in terms of what it takes to compete. Uh, just starting with the number of players it takes, right? I, I and what. While I I'm firmly in belief of of everything Peter just said about trading back, and and getting more picks, I, I would be fascinated to see someone go full Bobby Beathard. What he used to do is just keep trading for picks by borrowing from the future. Like why not? Why stop at one? Let's get seven extra picks each year by trading next year's seven picks, and then trade the 2024 picks for for picks in 2023. Get all the talent you 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 want now, and then fine. Maybe at some point. One year you go with no picks, but but otherwise, just keep borrowing from the future. Peter, what's wrong with that? There are teams that are doing have kind of done a version of that, which is to draft really well. The Rams, right? The Rams did drafted great from about 2012 or 2011 to about the middle of the decade, mm-hmm. and since then they've been trading draft picks away to acquire players who could help them win. Now the Seahawks may be in a similar situation where they were willing to trade picks to get players after drafting really well. For a while, I don't know if anyone's going to be as extreme as Bobby Beathard, but I mean, look, the Eagles just traded the 16th and 19th picks to New Orleans. They got back the 18th pick, right? So they they had Eagles had a total of three first round picks this year. They traded two of them to New Orleans, and they got back a first rounder this year, a third rounder. Well, they basically just swapped 18 and 19 this year. Well, no, they traded two picks that they they had three first round picks. Now they have two this year and they have two next year. So that's that's got to be – I mean that's that's trading in that way at a high level. That's accumulating first-round picks, not just you know second and third and fourth-round bodies. So that's – you know they, they are they're, – they're already trying to do that. I think another difference, right? You guys would know more about this than me. But the difference is there is a bigger difference between the very few top picks in the NBA in general and the rest of the field – compared to the NFL, where the traditional NFL draft draft trade chart says there's a huge difference between the top one or two players and everybody else. But the truth is, the value of, of the NFL players declines a lot in a lot more shallow way than I think it does in the NBA. And In the NFL, fifth and sixth and seventh round picks actually matter. You're finding starters in those rounds if you're a good GM. In the NBA, it's a bonus if you land a, a really good player in the second round. And the funny thing is you see that when a, when a team in the NFL, you generally see that when a team trades a veteran player. You know, you'll hear a name and you'll be like, oh, I know that guy. And he gets traded for what? A fourth pick or a conditional seventh round draft pick. But when it comes time to actually trade draft picks, they act as though middle first to second or third round picks aren't that valuable when in fact 
they're really valuable, and they show how valuable when they're trading for an already established player. I think this begs for one thing, Tom, and that is we definitely need an NFL draft initiative. <laughs> Maybe we'll spend the next year working on it, but it's just out of whack. All these, what, what, the value of a pick, who, who identifies good picks, which colleges produce players above their, you know, above their slot. We got to look into this. We'll have to parse that data. And I know that Herb Jones will help us parsley the data. Well, I just want to jump in here uh, as as we wrap up. Stu Gatz beat us to the Pelicans pick. He's already written off Chris Paul. There's breaking news from the shipping container. Stu Gatz has already buried Chris Paul in the first round. I mean, you heard it two weeks ago during weekend observations where I said you heard it here first. The Phoenix Suns are not making it to the NBA Finals. They lose game two last night, 125 to 114. More importantly, the curse of Chris Paul kicks in because Devin Booker gets hurt in the second half of that game. He pulled a hammy. Danny missed the second half of that game. And now we are 1-1 headed back to New Orleans. I am telling you, it's a combination of Chris Paul was just not meant to win an NBA title. I'm sorry. Whatever team he's on, they are cursed. And the Golden State Warriors, if they are healthy, are just a better team. You heard it here first. How about that? Sun's not making it to the NBA Finals. Not making it. In fact, I'm not even certain they're making it to the Western Conference Finals. How about that? Wow, you just upgraded the take right did. as you were having it because you, you I guess. It's a do-what-you-got-to-do day for me, Dan, and this is what I had to do. I had to announce that the Suns, I had to take it one step further than I needed to take it. That's what I had to do today. And now I am saying the Suns, with the Devin Booker injury, they might not make it out of the first round. How, how about that? Thank you, Stu Gotts, our, our patron saint of the Underdogs podcast, uh, for making that pick for us. And a very uh, statistically driven analysis is that Chris Paul is cursed. Stats 101. We probably should do a Mike and a Mad Dog or, or a Stephen A type discussion where we say, how far do these have to get for it to be a successful season? If the Suns get wiped out this early, that's terrible, right? It's awful. It's awful. It's a 1A matchup, no matter what. I mean, no matter how you slice it, it's it's Derrick Rose and Philly if they lose this this 1A. Like, yes, it happened, and it's an upset, but it, they did lose an, a, a key member of the team in Devin Booker. So I'm not willing to say the Pelicans. I'm not going there yet, but Stugatz did. And so, you know what? There's nothing left to say. He's going to be right because Stugatz is always right. 95% of the time he's wrong, but 5% of the time he's always right. Yeah, betting the mortgage. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the Underdogs Podcast. Thank you, Stu Gatz, first and foremost. Then Jordan Brenner, at Jordan Brenner on Twitter, at Peter Keating NJ, not MJ as in Michael Jordan, NJ as in New Jersey. Peter Keating, Jordan Brenner, we'll talk to you all next week. Thank you, Producer Mays. Oh, yeah, and Herb Jones. Herb Jones. Herb Jones. Herb Jones. I'm going to call him Herb Jones. <laughs> Yo- Jonas Valanciunas, Jonas Valanciunas, who knows? So he's now Herb Jones. Do you think he would have lasted to the second round if he were Herb Jones? You guys want to say you know something smart? Say a Suzuki. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Go Cubs.